Hi everyone. Due to some technical difficulties, we were not able to upload last week's message as we work through the first chapter of Titus. However, if you would like to hear that message, it is available on our YouTube page. If you type in New City Church, Bath, Maine, and then go find our live stream from October 2nd, 2022, it will be available there to listen to. So now, on to this week's message. Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Titus chapter 2, and the sermon title is Order in the Church. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the encouragement to be together as a church and to sing truth about you, to direct our hearts to you, God, and even through our best efforts to do that, it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can truly see you and understand your word today. So we pray that you would over, overwhelm each of us believers in Christ with, with your ability and power to transform our hearts by, the, by your word. Also pray for the unbeliever or the skeptic that may be here. Whatever variation of people, uh, God, I thank you that they're here by your sovereign power, your providence, and so I pray that you would also speak powerfully the gospel of Jesus Christ over this whole building, this whole gathering today, God, that you would be glorified and that Jesus would be made known and, and that our hearts would be instructed on how to be the church and what to, to do and how to conduct ourselves as people called by you. Lord, help us. Teach us, Lord. Thank you for your word. Um, let me be a vessel today. Speak through me, Lord, and give us all ears to hear what you would say in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as was already said, we're just journeying through Titus. This is part two of a series that we've just called Order in the Church. So chapter one was largely about leadership, and those that are part of city groups, you know that it was just such a great, at least our our group, and then one that I've also, another one that I heard of is just, it was so good to just think about how Christ is the perfect fulfillment of every one of those standards for the elder today in the church, right? Jesus is our perfect elder shepherd. And Paul is giving Titus this uh, great instruction to set in order the things that remain there in this city called Crete. Again, think about it as a real city uh, in a real time and place in the first century, uh, probably around the, the 60 or so AD is when Paul is writing this, um, which of course the actual planting and establishing of these churches would have been previous to that. But this is what's happening. It's a, it's a corrupted, sinful city like many of the cities in our world today, and it needs the gospel. And there were works that had begun by Paul and Titus is being instructed to establish leaders and set things in order. And that's going to come by several things that we've already mentioned. And that would be sound doctrine, a plurality of male elders qualified by God and called by God to teach and lead the church. And then today we get into some other things. We're continuing this theme of order in the church, um, but it certainly um, takes on another theme. And that is that we are not called to be like this world. That Christians are called to be different, peculiar people. So as we work our way through, we're going to just go through the text expositorily, and we will get, I believe, uh, we'll get the picture of what Christ is, is giving to the, to the church. So as we began uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, but as for you, but as for you, and that's, of course, connected to chapter 1. If you're reading the scripture, that's always important to, to connect the context. Um, and so... What we need to understand is that Paul is being called to something, or excuse me, Paul is calling Titus to something that is totally different than the world. He's called to be not of this world, but to be someone who is of Christ and is a believer in Christ. So Titus, much like you and I, is, is not to be worldly. We're to be uh, preachers of the gospel. We're to be people who are connected to Christ and his gospel and unlike the world. And so when he says, but as for you, he's making a distinction. He's saying, the world is this way, Crete is this way, but as for you, you are to be 
this way. You are to be like Christ. Your standard is coming from the Scriptures. For, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. True teachers of Christian doctrine are not to be like those that Paul described in verse 16 of chapter 1. Look back at verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you... So it's great to be able to draw those lines. We need to be able to draw those lines. As for you, this is how you're to be. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. I hope there's nobody in here that is professing to know God, but denying Him by your life. They are teaching what they ought not to teach, is what the Scripture says. So there is an imperative and a standard when it comes to what should and should not be taught in the local church. There's an actual standard, a line that should be drawn of what is wholesome, what is sound, and what is good. Some in Crete were not holding fast to this, but as for Titus and the example that he is to set, it must not be so for him. So he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So let me just point out here that there is an objective truth and doctrine that exists. There is objective truth and doctrine. You need to know this as Christians. There is a standard, a very solid truth that we all have, and that is in God's Word. That is the Word of God. God's Word, the doctrine of God, God's truth given to us. And then there is a life and speech and conduct that accords with truth and doctrine. You could very well say to me that you believe in sound doctrine, that you believe in an objective truth, but you could still not live your life by it or according to it. The words that come out of your mouth or the way you conduct your body and use your time could be not in accordance with sound doctrine, but accordance with the world's doctrine. So part of what Paul is telling to Titus is these things need to line up in the church. They need to line up in the church what is sound doctrine also needs to permeate into our lives so that we live soundly, so that we speak soundly. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul is telling Titus very clearly that not only is he to raise up and appoint qualified male elders in the church, but that he is to teach the church with sound doctrine how they are to live in this world. And that's part of what we do here as, as a mission to disciple and why we do city groups and why we, we put a lot of our effort into making sure that the Word of God is not just a theory in our lives, but a reality. And that's not something that I can do for you or any of the elders here can do for you. Each of you need to take that upon yourselves. As you listen to doctrine, as you, as you read the Word, that you become prayerful and humble, God, change me by your Word. Let my life be sound. So I want you to imagine that. People being told how they should live. Can you imagine that? People being told how they should live. It's something we really hate in this culture, don't we? But that's what, the God, that's what God's Word says. It actually says that if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, that is your life. Being told how to live. Being told by Christ and the teaching of the Word. So don't rebel against being told how to live. And if you're, if you're somebody who is um, sort of trying to reinvent home life, well, I know what God's Word says, but here's how I want my home to look. Well, I know what God's Word says, but here's how I want my life to look. And you could be really rebelling against sound doctrine. So that's what we're going to see in this chapter, that the conduct of men, both older and younger, also, women, older and younger, are going to be addressed, and servants in general, Paul will address to Titus, are to live their lives according to sound doctrine. Now, the word for sound in the Greek language means to be of good health. He's saying that there is healthy doctrine and then there is sick doctrine. That's the difference. Healthy doctrine makes healthy people. Sick doctrine makes a very sickly people. And there is a difference, and so we need to be upholding sound doctrine, having all that is good, not sick, compared to the sickly doctrine of false teachers who misrepresent the gospel here in Crete, that he's trying to tell Titus, Titus, there are people in this town. There is false teaching in this town. You need to set these things in order by teaching what is sound. 
So the application for Titus and for us is this. Christian duty needs to align with Christian doctrine. How we live aligns with doctrine. So he begins in verse 2 with the older men. So we're going to just dive right in. This is very specific, very heavy application. So whether you're older, younger, male, female, hey, it covers it all. We're all going to get spoken to today, okay? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So let's pause there for a moment. We really don't need to exhaust each word that is used here. You could certainly do that, take all the time to, to exhaust what all these words mean, what, what they all mean. But we can see that what Paul is encouraging Titus to do is to teach the older men in their fellowships to show a kind of stability and wisdom that should come with their age. Older men should have a stability about them and a wisdom that comes with that age. Now, the fact that he tells Titus to teach these things means that they will not actually happen automatically. Isn't that amazing? This has to be taught. So maybe you're like, well, I'm not in the older man category. I couldn't actually tell you what older man means other than you've lived things that other people haven't lived yet. You've born kids, you've married, you've gone through work situations, you have experience because of your age, but it doesn't come naturally that you'll be spiritually mature and close to Christ just because you're older. You have to be taught. So if you see yourself in that category and if you need help with that, maybe you need to come up to one of the elders. Am I an older man? And we'll just... We'll help to categorize you, all right? We need, if we need to do that, but most people know if you're in that category. No, I'm an older man. I didn't just say that about myself, did I? I am one of the older men. I am. This, and who are the younger men? You know who you are. You've not experienced certain things in life. Mark just raised his hand. He's one of the younger men. He's actually our oldest elder. <laughs> in case you wanted a little trivia about New City Church. <laughs> But this is something that should be about the older men in our churches and in our culture. Christian men. Older men of New City, no matter the gray in your hair, the experiences you have, the skills you possess, or the wealth that you may have accumulated or not, your Christian duty is to, re is to reflect the Christian gospel. As you get older, as you age, as you grow to reflect the Christian gospel and the Christ of that gospel, to reflect Christ more and more as you get older, and, and in your continuing in faith, love, and long-suffering. That's what it says here. Older men are to be sober-minded. There's a baseness to that, a gravity to that, dignified, self-controlled. Now listen to these. Sound in faith, love, and in steadfastness. For the mature, older man, there should be a certain gravity about you spiritually as you increase in age. So pray for that. Seek the Lord for that. That there would be this gravity about you. And that doesn't mean you can't have joy and there can't be a, a silliness from time to time with your kids and your grandkids. That's the most beautiful thing, isn't it? When somebody has wisdom that you can see and yet they're able to play with their grandkids and have joy and happiness about them. There's something about that. Matthew Henry says this, those who are full of years should be full of grace and goodness, the inner man renewing more and more as the outer decays. Well, you might get grumpier and grumpier because your outer is decaying, but God's word says you should become more and more holy, more and more like Christ as your outer decays because you are connected to eternity and a God who has given you eternal life. So you have no reason to fear or be sad about older age. And so how do we fight that? With the gospel. We fight that by knowing the truth of God's word. The word long-suffering is a Greek word that is not passive. So you're like, well, yeah, I'm all about being patient. Sitting around, waiting for things to happen. That's not what patience means. That's not what this word means. It's, a, it's an active word. David Guzik said, says it this way, older men are not to just patiently wait around until they pass on to the next world. They are to actively endure the challenges of life, even the challenges of old age. Actively waiting, patient, waiting on the Lord as you live out life, seeking after Christ. 
Then he switches to older women. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So now Paul tells Titus to instruct the older women so that their conduct might be according to sound doctrine also. So what he's saying to the older women, the fact that he says likewise, these are all things that every person should attain to and strive for. But there, is a, there are specific proclivities and sins that each sex and age group might tend to lean towards. And so you need to be specific about how you fight against sin in your life, depending on where you are and who you are. The word likewise, it does tell us that there are some specifics, though. The older women are to be reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. This is an interesting word. The word carries the idea of sacredness. That the behavior of older women in the faith that are in Christ, there should be a sacredness about how you live your life. Almost like saying, in this context, like saying you are like priestesses before God. Set apart. That's what I mean. A priestess is set apart for the duty of God, for the call of God. There's something about your life that is sacred, that is holy, set apart and live accordingly. Listen to how Peter addresses older women in his letter to the dispersion in 1 Peter chapter 3. Very amazing words that he says to older women in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So the point being that there is a beauty which God sees that no external beauty could ever contend with. Isn't that amazing? There's a beauty that God sees that there's no amount of external beauty that could contend with what God sees in the inner person of a woman's heart. Specifically, he's speaking to older women. Older women are to lead by example in this. One way that women in Crete were, le- were needing to be warned is to not let their mouths run rampant with slander. That was a specific warning for the Christians in the churches in Crete. Women, don't let your mouths run rampant with slander or be enslaved to much wine. So don't be controlled by a substance and don't let your mouths run rampant with slander. Interestingly enough, the word for slander here is the Greek word diabolos. He's saying don't do Satan's work. Don't be like the devil who is the accuser. Don't act the part of the devil, but be priestesses unto God. Now this goes for men too, of course. We're called to be set apart, not to use our mouths for those things, not to slander. Slandering, the tearing down of another person Falsely accusing people, that's, that's what slander would be. This is the, the default of the sinner. This is how we use our mouths before Christ. Such were some of you, Paul would say, but not anymore. And now this is where sound doctrine comes into play. Because it's not enough to say, well, I don't slander. And I don't gossip. I don't live immodestly, so as to draw attention to myself rather than Christ. The question isn't whether you don't do those things. The question is, do you then use your mouths to actively and intentionally do then what is good? So we could say all we want about our own righteousness. Well, I don't do these things. But what Paul is saying, teach the older women to not just not do these things, but to teach then what is good in a positive way, in an active way. Teach good doctrine. Look at verse 4. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be 
reviled. Now, this is serious stuff. This is drawing some lines. And some people would hear this very text and say, this is ancient. We don't need to do this anymore. This is old Bible times. People don't work in the home. We don't teach our children this. This is God's word, people. This is timeless. This is timeless. To ignore this would be grave sin. And the people who ignore this, by the way, are ruining the culture, ruining order, ruining our communities and families and homes. To ignore this. So you might say, well, it's better to be progressive, but then just look at those who are progressive. There is no order. The gospel isn't present there. The importance of teaching in the local church is really second to none. It's really a great commission call. It's no less than what Jesus told all of his disciples to do in Matthew 28. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So whether you're an older woman or a younger, or an older man or a younger, we are great commission people. So we are to teach as disciples, teach others to observe the things of Christ. And that's what we're called to do. The church is to be a teaching organism. The older teaching the younger. The younger teaching the older at times. That does happen from time to time. The strong encouraging the weak. Peers teaching each other. Showing each other God's word. Holding fast to the word and to the gospel together. Teaching happening. Not in an authoritative sense, but in a disciple-making sense. That as we learn God's word, we communicate God's word and we teach the ways of Christ. Now, what Titus is telling the older women to instruct the younger women is, like I said, completely countercultural, both, both then and now. The fact that he's telling them to do this there, and then we look at our day and we know this is countercultural. Teach them to love their husbands and children. You wish that wasn't countercultural, but it is. Teach them. Let that be a priority. Make that a priority for the older women to teach that to the younger women. So I'm going to speak to New City Church, older women. You need to be teaching the younger women these things. This is not my word. This is God's word. Make it a priority to set aside time to look for the younger women in the church and to bring them alongside you and teach them specific things about being a godly wife and a godly mother and reject the world that says that's, that's not progressive enough, that no, we need to teach women to get to the top. We need to teach women to climb the corporate ladder. Now, I will say, this is nothing to say about women can't have jobs. That's not what this is saying. But it is saying a woman, by God's design, is called to prioritize the home and prioritize husband and children. Why? For the kingdom's sake. Because children need to be discipled in the Lord and sent off as arrows to be effective in this kingdom. And how do we do that with parents that neglect the home? So it can't be that way. So I'd encourage you to take this very seriously. Instruct this to the younger women. You know, children are hardly ever celebrated today, it seems. You overhear conversations and you hear about children being burdens and you hear all these things about children and they're not celebrated like they used to be. Big families, not celebrated. You get the weird look. How many kids do you have? Nine. Pfft, what? <laughs> Eight, seven, three. You have three kids? When is that? A lot of kids, you know? Children aren't celebrated like they used to be. Are young women and young girls being taught from an early age the value of the Christian home anymore? And that by marrying a godly man and having children, she will be fulfilling the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. That's a godly, biblical, good thing to teach that to our young women. Additionally, older women are to teach self-control and purity. Teach that. Teach what that's like. Teach the struggles that you've had, how you have looked to Christ to overcome these things in your life. How else are the younger women? Just notice what he's saying. There's order to this. Titus was not to lead the, the women's ministry, and neither were the elders that he was going to raise up. They were not going to be the primary voices into the lives of the younger women. Who's it going to be? The older women in the church. This is imperative. You guys can see that, right? It's imperative. Teach 
Older women, or additionally, older women are to teach younger women the self-control and purity, how to work at home, and get this, how to be submissive to their own husbands. Watch out. <laughs> Watch out. This one is going to cause some issues in the world. It will cause issues if you dare to believe this and live this out. If you dare say, I'm going to follow God's word, I'm going to take him for what he says, I'm going to seek to be a wife who is submissive to a godly husband who loves me, and I'm going to teach younger women to do the same. You do that, and you are being countercultural, but you're doing kingdom work. You're doing God's work. So again, I'm not saying that women can't work outside the home. That's not the point. But here's what I want to kind of cover this whole thing with. If working outside of the home or pursuing a career or some dream that you have causes you to neglect husband and children then you are in disobedience to Christ and you need to repent. That's what God's word would speak to us today. If there is a, a, a misprioritization of the home and the work and your career and your dreams, if, there's, if that's out of priority, then you need to look at God's word and you need to repent and ask God for the grace to do what his word says. Look how Timothy is to instruct young widows. This is a similar parallel. Verse 1 Timothy 5.13 says, Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Isn't that interesting what he puts in place as a guard against slander? What he instructs the younger widows to pursue, I would encourage you to pursue marrying. Why? And he gives these reasons. So you can see in this way how godliness and reverence and self-control and fruitfulness are closely aligned with an orderly home in which biblical headship and submission are displayed. There's even protection against sin and slander from the enemy in a culture where marriage and the household and discipleship of children are made priority. So when we prioritize, prioritize those things, there is a protection that, that God gives us. And again, this will not be naturally done. So it must be taught. It must be instructed. No elder and no man in this church is going to do this beyond the influence of maybe the pulpit or in the home with our own daughters. Men, you do have a responsibility to teach this to your daughters. And so do moms. So the church needs godly women who are willing to stand against the culture. Are you willing to be that? And stand on the scriptures and teach the next generation of women to obey what the word of God actually says. I pray that that is the case with New City and generations to come. Verse 6, he says, Likewise, urge the younger men. It's funny how much he uh, narrows down the list here of what younger men need. Be self-controlled. That's it. If younger men can learn to be self-controlled, you've accomplished quite a bit. That's all that really needed to be said. Teach a young man to control their passions and desires, and you've accomplished 50% of maturity. The other half is to teach them what to do with those God-given desires. Not only tell them what not to do and to control their passions, but then teach younger men how to then use their passions and desires for the kingdom, for godly things. Young men, in this room, pray above all else for self-control. Pray for self-control in your life. Older men, let's teach the younger men by word and deed that sin is serious. We all have stories to tell of how sin entrapped us and we went headlong into it and we did not have self-control. Young men need to hear older men's stories and testimonies of grace and forgiveness and letting them see how the gospel has changed us. And if you're an older man, you say, well, I'm still struggling with self-control. Well, the gospel is still your answer and discipleship is the answer and Christ is the answer. And that's what we're doing today is we're saying together, whatever our needs are, we're looking to Jesus Christ and we need to humbly confess whatever our sin is and our need to him. But we need to confess and we need to teach 
that sin is serious, that our bodies are the Lord's, that success is found through humility. Young men need to see that. Not older men continuing to strive for the top, but older men who are humble and understand that the way to the top is actually going to the bottom, serving other people. You want to be the greatest? The Scripture says, be the servant of all. So young men in the room, front row young men, young men, I won't do it anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, you. <laughs> Pay attention to these things. This is the church that God is... I'm, I'm about to say a name. I want to... I, wanna, I, wanna, <laughs> I won't do it. I won't embarrass anybody. <laughs> but this is important, guys. So let's take, this, let's take this seriously. Older men, this is what it does come down to this. It comes down to us being this example of all these things, all of these things would be crucial to the new churches that were happening in Crete and that were born in Crete. Becoming orderly and fruitful, these things were imperative. So then Paul speaks to Titus himself, and he says in verse 7, look at the verse 7 with me. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, Titus, don't live a double life. If you're going to teach, then show yourself a teacher that's full of integrity. What you preach, live it out. Otherwise, and this goes for everyone, if you teach on the one hand the good doctrines of God and then show on the other hand you neglect to live out a life of good works, then you're tearing down your very own instructions. So we need to do both. Teach it, but teach it and show dignity and integrity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. And then he moves on to instruct bondservants. Look at verse 9 through 10. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So on this note, the reality is there has been slavery throughout history, and so it's important to address this because this is using that same word, doulos, that means slave. Here it's translated bondservant. You can tell that the translators are trying to give a little bit of a different understanding between what Paul called himself a servant of God, and then here bondservants of Jesus, or excuse me, bondservants. And there's this, there is a reality that in this culture there were slaves. There were, there were people who were owned by others and they had masters. Depending on our culture and the particular era, we see various forms and degrees of slavery represented all throughout human history. That's a reality of our history. And now we can look at any of these, any form of a human owning a human and say, this should not be happening, right? We can say that. We have to agree on that. This should not have happened. It should not be like that. But that does not change the fact that in a sinful world, this has taken place. And in this culture that is being written into, Paul addresses servants, and he does not allow them to see that their lowly estate is an excuse to be ungodly. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say... He's not going to give a case for abolition here. He's going to say two slaves who have masters, some of them, many of which were very loving relationships, and you say what you want about that, they, there should not be slavery, but either way, in this context, we can read many histories of wonderful relationships between slave and master, and even so much so that the slave didn't, didn't want to leave. I'll stay here. I'm going to continue to work this farm. I just want a place to live. They got fed. It was good relationships. Not always, but yes, that was the case at times. But Paul didn't say, well, because you're a, a slave down here, now you have the excuse to be ungodly. Look what he says to him. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters. Imagine that. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that, and there's a, there's a, there's a cause here, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. They were to be submissive to their own masters. Now, there's a reason we've equated these kinds of instructions with employment. Maybe you've heard that. Well, there's no, we don't have slavery like that in our culture today. So the closest thing that we can identify that with 
would be having a master over you, somebody that's your boss, right? And so all of us, most of us can relate to that. Having a boss or being a boss, Scripture has something to say about that too. But it's because it's the closest thing that we can apply this to in our modern day. So if you have a boss, now I'm talking to you and Scripture's talking to you, if you have a boss, and under that boss you have a duty to perform no matter the difficulty or how annoying the task is, Christians should not be complainers. No matter the task and no matter the difficulty, Scripture calls us to be servants of Christ and to not be complainers, not to be argumentative. I'll just ask, you know, just so it's just lodged in your mind, do you argue with your boss? Do you argue because the task is too great? Then you're in disobedience to Scripture. Now, if he's telling you to do something sinful and opposed to God's word, then you can stand your ground on the authority of God. But if it's because you don't like it or it's too hard, it's too difficult, Christians should be the hardest workers that there are in our communities. The most willing to work, the most willing to do even menial tasks. Because to do so, you are doing something. You are showing something. It's not purposeless. It has a purpose. Do what you're asked. Do not be a thief of time or assets while in employment. And just like the previous instructions that he's given, the way a servant lives out his or her life before a master is a witness for Christ. You know, the primary place that you guys are going to witness and share the gospel is going to be on your work, in your workplaces. Because that's where you are from, for most of your day. For most of you, that's where you are. It is a mission field. I know a lot of you see it that way. I just want to encourage you to continue to see that that way and that as you witness, as you work hard for the Lord, you are being a witness for Christ, especially then when you open your mouth for Christ. They've seen a life that's lived out in service to Jesus. It's amazing that it was only for the servant that he says that their behavior may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He didn't say that for the men or the women, the older or younger. He said that for the servants, that by your life and your conduct, you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That is, that is a special categorization right there. Think of the gospel. We're gospel people. We understand the gospel. It is, it is immense. It is, there's nothing better than the good news of Christ. Think of how complete it is and how perfect it is What could be done to adorn the gospel? Something so beautiful. According to this, a person of the most lowly estate or somebody who is in an unfortunate circumstance who submits to Christ and humbly shows an attitude of Christ, you are in a way making the beautiful gospel even more beautiful. Isn't that cool? You're making what is already beautiful even more beautiful by your submission to Christ in hard situations Places where you'd rather complain and you don't complain because you submit to Christ who is higher than, your, than any authority here. And by doing that, you adorn the gospel. So keep that in mind when you go to work tomorrow, how you might adorn the gospel. But lest we think that these are mere, mere moral lessons from Paul to Titus, the way that this chapter ends is perfectly, absolutely perfectly. We need to remember that it is all about the gospel. The behavior of Christian men and women, young and old, the conduct of Christians in the workplace and in their home, notice what it says in the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Look at what it says in verse 7, in your teaching, show integrity. As you teach, show integrity. In verse 8, so that the opponent of the word that is taught might be put to shame. So that the opponent might be put to shame, not the preacher of the word, not the teacher of the word. But above all of this, there stands this massive picture of Christ, our Savior, and the gospel. So he moves into verse 11, and look what he says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So in this last section, beginning of verse 11, we see the reason, the ultimate reason behind why older men are to be sound in faith, love, and patience. Why older men are to be sober-minded and why older women are to be like priestesses before God, knowing who they represent. And that they are vessels of a holy God, not slanderers or gossips or drunks. Why younger women are to be instructed to love, to love motherhood and the creation mandate. And to love being a wife who submits to a godly husband. And why young men need to control their bodies and their thoughts. All of these things, it's all because of the gospel. It's all because of the grace of God that appeared in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. After all of this was said, all of these instructions, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. This is the, uh, the effect on a life that has, that has received the grace of God and that has seen the grace of God. It's all because of the gospel, because Christ has appeared and in his appearing, he trains us to renounce the ungodliness of the world and its passions. The Christian will be for and in favor of many things. And maybe that's what your favorite thing is to do. I'd rather be for things. You ever heard that? We're better to be known for what we're for rather than what we're against. You've heard that before, right? And so there are things that we will be for and in favor of. But we will need to be against many things as well. We will be against things because of our love for Christ and his word and because of the gospel. Spurgeon said this specifically about, about younger men. He says, the most difficult part of, training, of the training of young men is not to put the right thing into them, but to get the wrong thing out of them. And that makes a lot of sense to me. It's easy to train and tell what, good, what is good, but to teach somebody what is rejectable and a passion that should be discarded, and something that should be turned away from and rejected and repented of, or told, that's evil, that's wrong, I will not pursue that thing, because it's objectively sinful. So, saints, you are not to be like the world. And it's not because God hates the world, but because God so loved the world. And chose to appear and show grace to sinners like us in order to save us. And so that very picture of Christ coming into a world to save the world is the reality that there is sin in this world. What is he saving people from? Saving us from sin, evil, death, hell. That grace and the love that we see in the Son of God dying for sinners and rising again is reason enough for you and I to renounce every ungodly passion that we find in our hearts this morning. So I'm asking you to honestly examine what are, the, what are ungodly passions that you need to renounce? What is in you that is of the world? What have you been pursuing that is of the world, that is worldly, that is not a result of sound doctrine, but a result of your own doctrine or, the, or man's doctrine or the world's standards? But there is not a single passion because of Christ and what he's done for us that we shouldn't be willing to forsake if it's not of him. So whatever there is in your life that needs to be renounced, turn from it today. This is an opportunity to even just begin to respond. To begin to respond to what the word is telling us today. What is it that we need to renounce? The Son of God appeared Scripture says he is a savior of grace, and that grace is a trainer. Look what it says in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Because we need to be trained in this. It's not going to come naturally. We need to be taught this as well. But it's the grace of God that trains us. It's a God who doesn't exact in return what we owe him in order to gain heaven. No, he's gracious. And even in light of our sin and what we've done against him, he gives us himself. He gives us Christ. He suffered. His blood was shed for us 
Though we do not deserve it, we were his enemies. We hated him. And he did this for us. It is the grace of God, the message that we can't earn it by works, but that he gives it to us freely in Jesus. That is the trainer to renounce ungodliness. It's not religion. It's not because you're trying to renounce worldly passions to earn something. It's because his grace has already appeared to us. So we're to look to Jesus and what he's done, what he's already accomplished That is the training and the instruction, and it has a specific purpose for the church, to make a peculiar and zealous people for his glory. That's what God is doing. That's what he's doing in this church. It is peculiar to think of young men being self-controlled, isn't it? That's peculiar. Wow. So just imagine that. A group of young men in New City Church and in the churches around our community that are self-controlled with their bodies. They're not looking at whatever their heart or their eyes say to look at. They're controlled. They see that. Maybe they see something they shouldn't. They sin, and they control themselves. They walk away because they know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That would be very peculiar to the world, would it not? It's peculiar today for young women to see being a wife and taking care of children at the home is is a high and glorious calling. That is peculiar That would be very strange to the world to see young women who are pursuing godliness, holiness, and taking God seriously and calling what he calls good, good. And actually seeing motherhood and being a wife as a high calling, not the bottom of the barrel, not I'll do this if this doesn't succeed, but actually making that first and trusting God with the rest. It's peculiar for men to grow in faith, love, and patience in their old age. That is peculiar. And to not become more solidified in, in, in grumpy impatience. <laughs> right? That's the normal. As we get older, we've earned it. We've earned it. We can get grumpy and more impatient. And you hear it. You watch the news. You look at children. Ah, kids. You know, or whatever. You know, whatever you see. <laughs> You know, everything's an inconvenience. Don't do that. Resist that, older men. My age and older. There's, there's older men in this room. We need you. We need your example. We need you to p- pursue Christ. Think about this in a generational sense. Think about how every generation needs the generation ahead of them to show them Christ. So important. And it's peculiar for older women to use their mouths for anything but gossip and slander. You know that this is the case. That is a peculiar thing. But all these things are possible in God's grace. As we pursue His grace, as we look to Jesus as utmost important, as the gospel remains the most important thing for us to know and love and live out, these things are possible. Brothers and sisters, Paul taught Titus to teach the Christians in Crete to be different from the world. We need to be different from the world. Why is that? Because we are the blood-bought possession of Jesus Christ. Because he purchased us. And no matter the opposition, we need to do what he, how he closes this in verse 15. We need this to declare these things. Verse 15, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregards you. And there will be people who want to disregard, but we have the instruction, declare these things, teach these things, live these things out as an example, brothers and sisters. Depend and lead, lean on the grace of God. And if this is a bizarre thought to you, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Jesus this morning, then that is, that is the, the response for you is to trust in Christ. To know that he did come to save people from a sin-sick world with a destiny for hell, but he does change and save lives and he rescues people by his blood and everyone who puts their faith in Christ and trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior who believes that he died on the cross, he was buried and he rose and he is God in heaven. That is the way to salvation through Jesus Christ. And so we need to declare these things, church. Let's continue to be passionate about what God wants us to be passionate about and renounce 
all worldly passions and pursue Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. There's many things that are rolling around in our minds now, and I pray that there is a, even a sense of conviction in many of us, changes that we would desire to make in our lives, but we cannot do it apart from your leading and by the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you that the strength for us to do this, to be older men who live a life that is an example for younger men, for the older women to teach the younger, for this to be a disciple-making generational church, God, we need the grace of God. We need the grace of our Savior who appeared once and is coming again. Thank you that that is our blessed hope the blessed hope that what is left and remaining unfixed, you will one day make all things right. But in the meantime, help us, God, to look to our Savior and to be the peculiar people that you've called us to be, to be zealous for good works, but leaning on the grace of God, never trusting in our works, but trusting in the gospel of Christ alone. I'm thankful, Lord. I'm thankful for every person here. Thank you for those that are pursuing you and those that you are pursuing. God, continue to sanctify us and that we would be a peculiar people in this world. God, that the world would see the salt and the light that you've called us to be and glorify our Father in heaven. I pray you draw the lost to yourself, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us to live this out for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of Jesus. Give us the strength to do it, Lord. And to give you glory when you give us success and freedom and victory in areas where we're still trapped in sin. God, help us and we give you the glory. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.